0: AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson, with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And, of course, now with the state legislature wrapping up their work and adjourning their session, we're going to bring on Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, to talk about what was passed at the legislature and the overall meaning of what happened, because lots of folks are saying this is one of the most significant legislative sessions we have had in quite some time. So happy to bring back on Patrick Kulikan of the Minnesota Reformer. Thanks for coming on again today. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So lots of things were passed this year by the DFL in uh, with their trifecta at the legislature and, of course, also having Governor Tim Walls As among other things, we will have more money for schools, legalized recreational marijuana, the right to abortion further protected in the state, also an expanded child tax credit, paid sick time, and a lot more, uh, as this was a very consequential session for the DFL. So when we add this all up, how would you rate the significance of this year's sessions? Are comparisons we've been hearing to things like the New Deal or the Minnesota Miracle back in the 1970s kind of accurate in your mind with what happened during this session?
1: Yeah, people are, are making those analogies, and I think they're accurate if you consider all the ways in which this legislature uh, with Governor Tim Walz uh, have transformed the state across a whole range of uh, sectors, from education to housing, transportation, civil liberties. Um, you just go down this long list of achievements, and I don't think we've seen this um, and certainly in my time here, um, but also I think that 1973 comparison is one that I'm hearing people make. Uh, the more seasoned folks at the Capitol, uh, and I think if you look in the history books, I think the, the FDR analogy is a good one, too.
0: Absolutely. And I think context is important when pointing this out, too, because the DFL went into this with only a one-seat Senate majority. Meanwhile, in the House, they only had a single-digit majority. So I I think that's something that we shouldn't discount, how difficult that probably was to get some of these things passed with those very narrow majorities. Can we talk a little bit more about why they were able to do this? Is it I guess where I'm going, were there any Joe Manchins in the Minnesota legislature? What were they able to do to try to keep their their entire caucus united around many of these bills, despite having their very slim majorities?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple things to say about that. Um, and, And you're right, that everybody expected that there'd be a lot more dissension and it'd be a lot messier uh and uh, with that one seat majority and uh i certainly thought that uh, this would give an opening for the kind of usual money interests to uh be able to uh have influence on uh some some big issues but there's a there's a couple of reasons why i think that didn't happen one is there was really a uh powerful uh, grassroots organization that was kind of in place and ready to go um, groups like Isaiah, the labor unions, um, and then all kinds of, uh, issue groups around the environment and housing. And, uh, they've been working at this for years, um, playing defense mostly in the past when we had a, uh, divided legislature. But this time, um, they were ready to go and to keep the pressure on the legislators, um, and, and not let them uh take that foot off the gas so um isaiah for instance which is a progressive ecumenical group they they tell me that they had five thousand people at the capitol at one time or another this session um and i I think the fact that the, the legislators were in person this year as opposed to the pandemic years i think made a difference um and so that's just one group um so you had that really powerful uh grassroots organizing to keep the pressure on and then you just have a very different democratic party dsl party uh than, say the last time they had the trifecta in 2013 2014 we had a lot of rural members uh socially very moderate um you had a guy like tom bach who eventually became a republican or was caucusing with the republicans he was running the senate dsl caucus and, and just a totally different set of priorities um the party now is just much more uh urban, suburban, diverse, young, and it's um uh it's just more ideological. Uh, and I don't I don't think there's any denying that. Um that uh they've there, there's a uh a recent history here um where the the Democratic Party has uh united around a set of principles that maybe wasn't there um, as recently as 10 or 20 years ago when it was kind of a collection of interest groups and a lot of, uh, kind of legacy Democrats, we'll call them. And now it's just a, a much more, uh, ideological and, uh, principled, I guess you might say, um, uh, party. And that, that's reflected in the, in the members.
0: I want to go back to something you were talking about as well. The fact that they were largely able to uh, stick together on so many of these bills and, uh it's interesting when you compare that to other Democratic trifectas we see around the country. I know specifically in your column, again, over at minnesotareformer.com, you talked about how Democrats have typically run into all sorts of trouble in New York, for instance, despite the fact that they control the governor's mansion and both chambers of the legislature. We've certainly seen this in California at times where they haven't maybe passed as uh, progressive bills as Democrats would like, or even Vermont, where I know they were trying to get into single-payer health care a few years ago. So. Is this kind of that organizing effort that was able to lead to this more ideologically kind of coherent base? Or was it more naturally kind of a thing that was happening with that DFL party becoming more and more urban and having less of those more moderate rural members that used to be in the party, for instance, like on the Iron Range?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the there was a sense in which that that you have to seize this moment. Um and, and that's where it's it's maybe helpful to be out of power um for a few years um and then you realize, well, you know, when we when we get back in there, if we ever have a chance to, like we're gonna actually do what we, we think ought to be done. Rather than, you know, in some of these uh trifecta states where um it's it's just a lot of uh well how do I keep my piece of the pie here? Uh, and it might be Kind of democratic aligned interest groups, um, stabbing their, uh, friends in the back, um, if they feel like they need to to keep their piece of the machine. Um, so I think there's still, uh, a lot more to understand about why things would be so different here than some of these other places, especially since the, the majorities here were so narrow. Um, and, It's also possible that those narrow majorities were in some ways persuasive to members because um, you get the group dynamics where, you know, who wants to be the one who's going to take down, uh, you know, any of these programs um, or policies? You know, do you you really want to be the one person identified with... um, you know, with the fossil fuel industry, say, uh, or, um, or not investing in our transportation system or with gun industry, um, because if you're the one who's going to vote no, that's, you're putting a big stamp on your forehead. Um, and so that may have been, um, part of this too. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just a good question. We're going to have to, historians will, will know more.
0: And I guess kind of a two-part question here is uh, we we wrap things up in the next few minutes, but uh, as we talked about, we they've the DFL passed a number of priorities like more money for schools, legal marijuana further rights to abortion codified into law, the child tax credit paid sick time, and more. So lots of things were were accomplished by the DFL. Does anything, I guess, part one, particularly surprise you that they were able to get passed, or maybe the word around the Capitol that was a surprise they were able to get passed, that people were thinking maybe they didn't have a chance? And then as we look ahead to the session next year, are there still any priorities the DFL may try to work on in 2024?
1: yeah I was surprised that given the surplus um, and and given the true political instincts of the speaker Melissa hortman and the majority leader carrie dieick and the and the narrow majorities that uh, they would um, they would actually raise taxes um, specifically for housing in the metro and um, and for transportation, they index the gas tax. So that's going to go up with inflation and they raised the sales tax for, uh, for transit. Um, that was gutsy and, um, and, and I'm surprised that they held together on that. Uh, the, the, the Republicans, I, you know, certainly licking their chops, um, for the next, uh, election and they're going to use those votes against Democrats. So, um, given the surplus, I was a little surprised um, that they raised taxes, um, but they think that's uh, needed. And, so they, and, and again, you know, 2013, 2014, they had a shot at uh, the gas tax and they didn't raise it. And um, the next uh, decade was spent um, bemoaning the lack of transportation money. So I think they, they decided they weren't going to make that mistake again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And looking ahead to 2024, uh, during that session, I know obviously the, it won't be quite as big as the 2020 session since typically that's what happens in even years. But are there any priorities the DFL and other members of the legislature are talking about that they might want to work on? I know obviously for for the nurses union, the, the new nursing bill was a little bit of a disappointment. So is there anything they could be looking at in 2024 that might be on their agenda?
1: I'm actually set to go talk to the speaker at 3.30 today, so I'm, I'm eager to hear what she has to say about that. Um, I, I tend to think personally uh, that it's going to be a lot of cleanup. Um, you can't pass this much uh, legislation and not and it not require um, some fixes. Um, in fact, I talked to a, a lobbyist who was there at the 1973 session. He says, I remember that session well, and I remember the, 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 co- the rest of the 70s we were kind of cleaning up various mistakes that had made. Um and so I, I think um everybody needs to be ready for that. And uh and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. Um you know if you wanna achieve big things there's gonna be there's gonna be um you know hiccups and I, I think we see that with the with the with Obamacare for instance. Um kind of a messy rollout and then you know they're still making fixes um all the way into last year. And um, so that's that's what I see a lot of happening uh, next session. They they also have it's going to be a relatively short session. The second year is always a shorter session, mm-hmm. but they actually had more legislative days this year than normal. Um, I understand. I believe so. So I, I think it's going to be pretty short, um, but and, and also an election year. So, you know, you don't necessarily want to be taking tough votes um, in an election year. Um, so that's uh.
0: That's next year. Yeah, it's something we'll have to chat about next week, yeah, when you get a chance to uh, speak with the speaker talking about uh, what their priorities might be coming up in 24 and uh, maybe some of that maintenance you were kind of talking about that we saw back in the 70s after the Minnesota miracle. Well, make sure you check out Patrick Kulikan's column in the Minnesota Reformer, wrapping up the legislative session and talking about how the DFL went big. Again, find that over at minnesotareformer.com. We have been speaking with Patrick Kulikan of the Minnesota Reformer. As always, thanks for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.